Welcome to Tech Breakfast, today's top headlines served hot by your host Aaron Bewley and Tyler Gates. So grab your coffee and let's get into it. It's Wednesday, September 23rd. On this night, 174 years ago, Neptune was directly observed for the first time. It was mathematically predicted before we were able to see it, but finding it became quite a sensational moment in the 19th century. Finally, seeing it was a significant confirmation of Newtonian gravitational theory. So this was a pretty big deal. What's Newtonian gravitational theory, you ask? Well, the concept is every particle attracts every other particle in the universe with a force that is directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. The and big now G. we're going to talk about beer with our special guest today. <laughs> Andy Scherzinger is on the show with us today. How you doing, man? I'm great. I really don't know how to follow up a fact like that, though. That's uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, we we could just dive into that. Those those <laughs> are in Aaron. I'm glad you found that fun fact. One because I I did not know that 174 years ago was the first time that we visually confirmed Neptune's existence. You know, post the math side of that. But those are probably my favorite, like scientific sort of discoveries are the ones that come from your, you know, your Maxwell's and your Newton's and your Einstein's that are just mathematically predicted generations, you know, decades, sometimes Mm -hmm. even centuries ahead of when we're even going to technically be capable of confirming their existence. Einstein is particularly cool in that category because the stuff that his math predicts or that he predicted using math very well, um, requires energies that we didn't think we would be able to produce quite possibly ever. And, and there are still some, right? Like you may have heard some of the fun facts or, or theories around string theory. The mm-hmm. problem with some of the string theory theories is that it would take all of the energy in like the known universe to verify that some of those strings and their dimensions are there, which obviously seems not terribly valuable as a scientific theory. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of hoping that maybe that's not how it works in some cases. Um, and then, of course, we find clever ways to, to pick that stuff apart. But I love that stuff. So cool. All of these yeah, people who, who come up with this stuff uh, and without the you know tools that, that we have at our disposal today are just proof to me that that AI existed well before uh, we brought it in <laughs> and that these people were the first first inclination of it. So yeah, it's, it's incredible it's so the things true. that they did with such limited tools around them. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, Andy, tell the lovely people at home what you do. Uh, well, I mean, it's 2020, so I sit at home all day. No, I, I can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> Got them. <laughs> I have been at, uh, I've been at, EMC, now Dell EMC, for the past seven and a half years. Uh, I am now a hyperconverged specialist for um, our enterprise and global customers in the central division of the United States. So all that to say, I get to have some really fun conversations similar to what I'm sure you guys do around, um, you know, fun technologies to transform how businesses operate and make them more agile and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, been a lot of fun. I, I, I like awesome. the team I'm on. I like the tech I work with. I like the people even more. Yeah. Awesome. And just so our listeners at home know, all three of us go way back with Andy as well. And I guess, Andy, you heard uh, Tyler mentioned something about uh, wine on one of the shows or something. And it triggered you to say, hey, I, you know, you, you missed out on this tech or that, you know, advancement or whatever. So thank you for coming on the show and Absolutely. Uh, sharing with the people, man. So Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like totally random, but um, 
I guess my subconscious was super excited to be on the show. I, I woke up this morning after a dream that I had slept through it. And it turns out that in my dream, it was a four-hour podcast in person. And I was like three and a half hours uh, late. Where, where do I sign up for that? And I walk in and I'm just getting these evil glares from Bewley. And I was like, oh, no, I let him down. And, uh, <laughs> you walk in three and a half hours late to a four-hour meeting? Yeah. And then uh, I decided to like literally college. hit the showers and like I go – uh, back to my hotel or something and there's a pizza on the shower curtain i don't know i don't i don't try and understand <laughs> wow this is a lot a lot to unpack there that's good that's good okay so what did we miss um what do you want to what do you want to dive into what were you and tyler talking about well yeah that's so actually the the story on how andy i i shouted him out because we uh we did we got into to wine and craft brewing in general i don't know a couple of ups ago and um I remembered uh, from our time working together that Andy was big into craft brewing and craft distilling and I'm sure craft all the other things at this point as well. Um, and so I gave him a shout out and then he he kind of came back and was like, I'm surprised you guys didn't just go off the deep end on automation and brewing. And that sounds like a really fun topic. So boom, take the stage. Okay. Are, are we just going to let it slide that, that Tyler just threw out a couple eps ago? Uh, just very <laughs> did he say that I didn't yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> a few eps ago is that a thing it, it, that sounds like old man trying to sound relevant to the kids type speak right there <laughs> i just i pronounced hello, the apostrophe kids. hello children it's like when whatevs became a word it drove me up the wall like <laughs> but well, you're, you're probably going to hear eps a lot now because yeah. either tyler's going to use it now. intentionally or i'm yep. going to use it to mock him so <laughs> okay well Excellent. uh let's 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 put you and andy on the diving board and shove you guys off into the deep end yeah so it Take was kind of interesting that you guys brought it up brought up uh, the idea of iot and technology in the process in general um i'll throw out a disclaimer there we live in texas so any of the atf people listening uh any distillation i have ever done has been strictly to purify water um but <laughs> there's some there's some really cool stuff going on in the wine space, particularly out in Napa. Um, Brad Shive, who I think we all know on this call, but he introduced me to this vineyard out there called Palmaz, Palmaz, something like that. And they use IoT all over the place. Like so fasting. Yeah, I've heard of these. Yeah, it's it's really cool. They're doing stuff to monitor like uh, the moisture level inside of the the soil. They're looking at nutrient content and all that. And they were able to actually track the efficiency of their yields and show from a profit Gosh, perspective back to pre-harvest. That's nuts. Yeah. And by doing so you change your watering schedule because at mm -hmm. some levels they're going to absorb greater than in other places on the, uh, on the ground. So they adjust how they're doing that, which makes them more water efficient by doing so their yields become like 20, 30% more efficient, which means end of the day, there's significantly more, uh, profit to be captured there. So like even in the wine space, they're trying to find some really creative ways of tracking some of that. Uh, it, it's funny, but uh, one of the things that I talked to a lot of my customers about was always like the trends in what's happening inside of the data center. And I told them, I, I think that there's been this almost parallel story going on inside of the beer world. Uh, when I think about it, like you look back in the seventies and eighties when really there were only big players on the market um, and if you wanted to get into the space of making beer even professionally it was a massive investment in time and effort and ultimately was really difficult to succeed uh, and as time went on 
we started to see people doing these things on their own. They were building stuff in their garages, probably similar to what Tyler had before he moved. It's very DIY in, in how oh, yeah. we did these things, which means that we're spending hours and hours and hours on the day of um, and yep. during the weeks in between brew sessions trying to figure out what worked, what didn't, what parts in the clean brew, clean again, losing yeah, lots of data, not knowing what your efficiencies are. Like just just trying to figure out what yield was in home brewing was it was kind of an adventure for me. I really enjoyed it, but you could easily make mistakes that would make it a little bit more difficult to to measure or figure out, you know, where something went wrong. Yeah, and then what do you, what do you do with that, right? Because it's if you find out what it is, then you have to engineer the solution as well and then hope that it works the first time. And it's not something that was catastrophic to what you were working on that day. Uh, so fast forward into the future, uh, we'll call it five, six years ago, we started to see these fully electric all-in-one systems that come out and hit the market. In one, um, in one device, one appliance, if you will, you could effectively brew a five-gallon batch inside of a garage or inside of an apartment kitchen. Yeah. Um, everything is literally driven. how I started brewing in, in, in my early days, I was doing this in a two bedroom apartment, uh, on the second story of an apartment complex. That's awesome. <laughs> I can remember spending the night there once and waking up. I had no idea what this was all about. Waking up to the sound of like these buckets burping. Yeah. <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah. Cause like like everything, I kind of dipped my toe into it, decided I loved it, and then just went full bore. So I built a fermentation vessel, uh, which is just a big insulated box um, that had a like a mini fridge hanging off the side of it so that I could simultaneously ferment upwards of, I think it was seven, six and a half gallon carboys if I wanted to. Wow. Um, I don't know that I ever did all of that at once, but I do believe I had six uh, five gallon carboys at one point. So I, I was not messing around, and when it started burping, it was it was not it was not a small sounds. It was like the whole room on that side of the house was making noise. It was fun. I love it. I mean, in, like in, in my setup, I've been doing quite a bit of changes since I've had extra time um, in and around the house during the the COVID pandemic. But like my current configuration, I'm running two different systems. One of them is that appliance that I was just talking about. That actually lets me go all the way from recipe development through the entire brew day in a single That's app awesome. experience. Oh, so cool. I, What's that I, app? Um, so it's run by a company called uh, Grain, Grainfather. And I've heard their, of entire, their entire platform kind of links together. Um, and they've yeah, created cool. this ecosystem where I could upload upload my recipe and even pre-stage my water the night before. It'll kick on the device at you know 4 o'clock in the morning so that the water is up to temp when I wake up. I walk awesome. up drop my grains, stir it up. It will automatically adjust the temperature throughout my session as I need to. I just lift the grain out, drain into a carboy, or ideally in their world, um, I have one of their conical fermenters and it will transfer my data over into that and will actually monitor my fermentation and adjust the temperature as needed. What? As much hands-off as you possibly can. Yeah, that's amazing. But I mean, think about how and that, was all, that, is. that was all stuff I was excited about when I when I was brewing. Because again, I started in an apartment. Even uh, when I moved to a different apartment that had a little bit more space and made it a little easier to get into some of that stuff, um, I, I kept scaling up. So I, I had a twenty gallon brew pot. Um, I never had the physical space to go to like a three tier all grain brewing. And, and for folks that aren't familiar with brewing beer, if you're doing large batches, large for a home brew, um, the the 
physical space necessary to do it right can get out of hand. And I discovered something called brew in a bag, which basically took the grains, which you then crushed, which then, you know, you steep kind of like a tea in, in a pot. Um, it would let me do the steeping process for all what ultimately would be the 15 gallons in, uh, in a single pot. And so I just needed effectively a winch to pull this giant bag of wet grain out of that and then sparge, which means run, you know, fresh hot water through it again to try to get all the sugar out of the grain before you actually start the, uh, you know, I guess, quote, the brewing process. I guess it's all part of the brewing process. But um, there are so many parts of that where you're measuring the temperature, you're trying to contain the temperature. You know, I mean, I had insulators for my pots. Uh, you have to do lots of cleaning before and after, but there are so many little things that you can tweak that can have a, a noticeable impact. So noticeable mm-hmm. being whether it's smell or a flavor that goes into the beer, depending on when you introduce certain temperatures or when you started adding hops in the boil process, all of those things actually change how it feels in your mouth, how it tastes uh, on your tongue or how it smells when you're drinking it and things like that. So Timing is critical throughout the entire process, and little adjustments can actually change the flavor. That's not always bad, but it's it's difficult to control. So the idea of just throwing sensors at everything and then having logic, especially logic you can tune so you can make adjustments to it, is is such a cool idea. And so it's it's really neat that in just the last few years, we went from like toying with these sensors in sort of a homebrew context to having end-to-end application visibility for tuning all of those variables and having it ready to kick off when you wake up in the morning. I mean, that, that I could have kept brewing for like five more years, probably, uh, uh, dude, it, if, it if it was so that much, much easier. It, it gets so much worse or better, depending on your perspective on it. I mean, <laughs> ultimately, the problem, the problem that you're trying to solve for is kind of twofold. One, um, you you need that data because you need to be able to repeat the process. Mm-hmm. Um, we I joke around with a lot of newer brewers, but like any any idiot can walk in and accidentally make something amazing one time. But if you want to come back and you want to be able to do it repeatedly, uh, that's the sign of a good brewer. Well, if I can automatically track and my equipment can adjust with me throughout the entire process, then I kind of idiot proof what I'm doing yeah, and I'm just really fine tuning it. it. Right. And if I can control it, then I know at 152 degrees, it's going to behave differently than 149 or 151 or whatever the case may be uh, during the mash process. So you're, you're trying to solve for that. Um, but the other thing to me is you're, you're trying to solve for the in-between brew day problem. Um, I, I tell people whenever they ask about like why I like the all grain or the, uh, the all-in-one systems, which are effectively brewing a bag. Uh, we call them brewing a basket now just because it's a, a <laughs> stainless steel one. Ah, but cool. it's it's all one company that supports the entire thing. So if okay. anything on that breaks, I call one of two people because ah, I have two different systems. Integrated support. Mm-hmm. And I say, hey, such and such didn't work. And they're like, oh, my bad. We'll send you a brand new one. That's um, awesome. So it instead of me trying to figure out an engineering solution to solve this problem, I work on my recipes. I work on researching yeast health. I work on um, researching a, a historical style that I've never brewed before because I have the extra cycles that I normally would have been doing uh, troubleshooting hardware problems that aren't there anymore. Yeah. And and what's what else is cool about, I think, the craft industry? Because um, 
you you know there's craft winemaking there's craft uh distillation distillation's a little less common because it tends to be illegal in most of the United States anyways to distill at any scale um without a license right um but i i i sort of started getting into the research side of distillation um because my my family my father-in-law has a blueberry farm he uh, started producing he's a it's a native winery now so he started producing blueberry wine uh we call it cool blue it's kind of cool limited availability pretty much mississippi parts of texas right now um but then he also produced vodka one year and he he produced the vodka through sort of a, a partner. Someone took his berries and, and our recipe and created cool blue vodka, but um, they decided they didn't want to produce it again. So we, we pretty aggressively went down the path trying to figure out what it would take to get the distillation license. Unfortunately, it looks like his farm is in a dry County in uh, um, Mississippi. So we're, we're at a bit of an impasse now, but in the course of this conversation, I started doing a bunch of research just to try to understand stills and kind of where that technology was and, and what people are doing for call it small scale commercial distillation. And one of the cool things I ran into and Andy, I'd be interested if you're familiar with it is in large scale breweries, uh, what's called continuous distillation is common. Right, because they ha- they're working with such large quantities that they take the the mash, the almost beer like sort of sugar mixture, and then they distill it. So they're boiling it up and they're stripping out all of the uh, bad alcohols that can come, as well as pulling off uh, other oils and things that that you don't want. And that's the the distillation process is basically trying to just take the alcoholic sugary water and convert it to pure ethanol is the attempt, right? Um, the the idea of doing a continuous still, which has some efficiency gains, back to what Andy was talking about with uh, homebrewing and beer um, and in that winery, right? Um, it wasn't really feasible on small scales at all. And it turns out, and this is even more recent than I think a lot of the automation stuff that started to happen in the homebrew space, homebrew being homebrew beer, um, is that continuous distillation stills on small scales have become sort of this uh, pet project for the craft distillation industry. And so we were looking around and, and sure enough, the, the group that had helped us was actually using a small scale continuous distillation still, but it wasn't as highly automated as some of the stuff that I kind of found as I went down into this rabbit hole. And it, I mean, it was, it, on the surface, it looks like pure rocket science. It's awesome. <laughs> And then it turns into ethanol. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you think about the the most dangerous parts about it is you you are making combustible, flammable things in this process. And whereas, like, and poisonous. Yeah, if you don't pull it apart, poisonous, and you got to pull it apart. Yeah, but I mean, if you can control some of the more dangerous aspects of that, which come from temperature variants. Um, it becomes a safer process ultimately. So you start seeing electric stills. Um, mm-hmm. Are hooked up to rims Herms systems uh, for how they are recirculating the temperature or the the liquid. And to Herms is a hybrid electric recirculating mash. Is that are they uh, called yeah, is yeah. It hybrid? Is H a hybrid in the in the acronym? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I thought so. It's so hybrid electric recirculating mash Sorry. system or heat exchange. There you go, heat exchange mash recirculation or recirculating mash systems that's what herm stands for he dropped that one in there it's actually really neat if you google that one you'll probably have some fun if that's up your alley yeah i mean you, you it's funny you mentioned that whole you know you 
kind of go down this rabbit hole kind of mentality. My wife jokingly calls me a maniac uh, in any kind of my hobbies because if I find something that I somewhat enjoy, I go way off the deep end. Um, like we started <laughs> That's the only way to do it. Exactly. Like it was, I started kill. making beer and I was like, I'll make five gallons. And now I'm like, I'm going to do six beers before Saturday. And I'm also <laughs> going to make 10 different meads this weekend. Like it's, That's it's awesome. ridiculous. I'm a firm believer overkill is underrated. So good for you. <laughs> totally. There you go. See, uh, this is just making okay. me want to start. Brew. I don't even drink beer anymore because I've been keto for like three years, but I want to go and just revive my system. So, so my system, by the way, is a big 20 gallon stainless steel pot. I've got some pumps that I was using in it. I, you don't need pumps quite as much in a, uh, a Baruna bag as, as we were talking about earlier sort of system. But I went full bore kegging early because I thought it was cool. I think I had more fun building out the kegeration and the fermentation vessels, you know, just toying with the build side of this. But I have a four tap converted upright, like piano black frigid air freezer. Um, that's got four tap handles for kegs. I can fit four corny or Firestone kegs, like the old Coke kegs before they were doing Coke out of the, you know, just a box of uh, goo. And, um, and then I had, I had that fermentation vessel, which unfortunately got destroyed and, and they lost half of it when it was in storage when we were overseas. Um, so I don't have that anymore, but um, I, I think I have I probably, I don't know, nine corny kegs. And I got, <laughs> I never even used them. This is a sad story, but I got these two and a half gallon plastic D type kegs, which is the, the kind of the traditional, if you're going to go rent a keg for a, your neighborhood barbecue party. Um, and I, I got those cause I was going to start putting my beer in them so that we could go float the river down in Austin with a, like a little mini keg floating next to us. Um, so I have like six of those and all of this system just looks at me and mocks me. And a couple of those cornies <laughs> still have beer that I brewed like going on a decade ago now. And, oh. and beer, I mean, the, the flavor profile is going to change, but beer doesn't really go bad, even though temperature swings could make it taste weird. We I actually cracked into one. I made a, a Schneider Aventunus Klein for anybody that's familiar with that. It's like a deep, dark, double block, real rich flavor. And it was one of my favorite brews. Um, and I found a keg of it. And I just, I threw keto to the curb that night. Lots of regrets the next day, by the way. But uh, I, I drank that beer. It was still good. Almost a decade later, I had homebrew in a keg that still tasted, it, the hops weren't quite, quite right because it's one of those oh, flavors yeah. that dissipates over time. But everything else about it, I mean, it was sealed in a pressurized keg with no oxygen, completely dark. You know, these are stainless steel corny kegs. So um, I don't, it's just, it's cool. It makes me want to go play with it again. Which is why cans are better. Like you talk to anybody who actually yeah. makes beer, canning. if you point. can correctly, um, a can is just a small keg, which means it's going to maintain shelf life significantly longer, and it's going to help the quality of the beer to stay higher. But, That's a fun fact. So bottles, the other one, bottles let in light. They do. Light and is bad. I, light is bad, and bad. like I tell my wife and and both of my sons, um, rule number one is that oxygen will kill us all. So like, don't let oxygen <laughs> ever touch your beer. Um, true. And try and make sure that it stays clean. The other one for you to look into, Tyler, if you start getting down the rabbit hole again, is uh, tilt hydrometer. They are basically these small little IoT sensors that sit inside of your fermenter. Oh, yeah. Cool. You put them in and they me measure and monitor the temperature as well as the specific gravity, which is the amount of yeah. fermentable sugars that are in suspension 
um, in the wort and then into the beer. So you can actually track your fermentation from the day that it starts until the real day that it ends. And you can see how that yeast behaves at different temperatures. You can track it using charts. Uh, I have mine communicating to a raspberry pie inside of my brew house. So I just flip it over there and I can see all four of the beers that are going on, what temperature they're on, what stage of fermentation they're in. And I can independently do all this. And then I have all the data after the fact to be able to track it. So that's another one to have some fun with. I'm going to have to go make some friends because I'm, I think I'm going to start brewing beer again. There's some good guys up in your area, man. (laughs) Um, you know, this is actually interesting because uh, one of the one of the problems I have with the family operation that we've got going now, because uh, we we outsource the production of the wine at first as well, and now uh, we're we're kind of setting up the winery proper on the blueberry farm or on the premises of the blueberry farm, and uh, one of the issues that I have with that is that nobody in that part of Mississippi is really keen to brew or work for somebody else that's brewing, you know, commercially at a small scale. So I'm trying to help my father-in-law sort of identify everything that we would need to make this an as automated as possible remote operation. So stuff like this, uh, which I, I'm thinking through, like the fermentation in wine, one of the bigger problems that I, uh, you can automate dealing with it, but I don't know how you would put sensors into the fermentation vessels as easily is that the, uh, when you're fermenting on the skins, the, they, it, it produces something called like a cap. And that cap is basically all of the solids kind of come up as part of the, the process where the sugar is being converted into alcohol and carbon dioxide. And you get this really thick. And I mean, like, you want to work out, manually mash this stuff down. It's intense. You get this cap on the top that you need to break, one, so that those solids get back down into the liquid and the sugars can get pulled out of them and yeast can do this stuff. But um, it, in larger scales, you, you actually get fermentation vessels that have punch downs and those punch downs are hmm. hydraulically actuated plates basically that kind of spin and push and they mash the cap down into the liquid again. And that doesn't play nicely with sensors floating in the top of it. No, so not so much. <laughs> But they usually have thermal wells and things like that. So the, at least on the temperature side, we should be good. The specific gravity, I would, I would love to be able to figure out how to measure uh, almost, I guess, DIY, measure the specific gravity of the wine in the fermentation vessels. Um, because it would be it, almost all the research that I do. Cause, and I guess, I, I think it's because wine production in the craft space it's, I'll say it's a little more difficult in some ways, a lot of times because like, for instance, with beer brewing, you can buy all of the specialty grains. In fact, some people even bake their own grains, like they're, they're actually cooking them themselves. So you can go like straight from the raw material to a fermentable base. Winemaking, it's really difficult for most people at home to grow grapes or other fruits that can be used in a similar process to produce wine from the ground up. So usually you're starting it like you've got liquid. Um, but at small scale, wine doesn't actually function quite the same as at large scale. And a big part of it is because you don't have the solids part of that process. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you're not usually growing your own grapes at home and then mashing them and, and in a small small percentage, or at least not, the, not what I ran into. But as a result, fewer people do it. And if fewer people are doing it, you don't get as much of like the community engagement and you don't have the, um, I guess, the community that would buy something like 
tilt hydrometer or one of the automated systems. So I just don't see it as much, but I'm kind of, I'm right on the edge of where the stuff you do at home does not make sense for commercial wine production, but our production quantities aren't really high enough to go full bore in all cases. So it's, uh, it's been fun to sort of dig into it. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's an interesting position to be in, uh, in between those two, in, in between those two spaces. It, it's funny that you bring that up about growing the grapes and stuff. Cause to me, it's kind of a totally different regionality problem of what beer has. Um, typically people get into homebrewing beer for a couple different reasons. One of them is, and Tyler, you're a great example. You've lived kind of all over the world. And so you've seen and experienced these local regional things, these local regional styles of beer that might not be commercially available here in the U.S. So you move back to the U.S. and you're like, man, you know what I really miss was this ridiculously obscure Italian grape ale that I had when I was in Rome this one time. So you start doing your research and you make it yourself because there's no real other way uh, to get it yourself. The other side is, you know, people just think that it's fun. Uh, from an artistic perspective to make your own stuff. You get crazy people like me that find out that you can compete in making beer. And so that's like a major driver in what I do. Uh, But the regionality is more style-based. What what kinds of hops I can grow locally and then how I incorporate them into the styles based on, typically historically, it's weather-related. That's where lagering came from, for instance, is the ability to put my stuff outside and let it ferment in colder temperatures. Um, wine is very much driven by what grapes can grow healthy right. in my climate and in my area. Soil. Yeah. And, and that's going to dictate everything like Texas, like we, we can't grow a good cab here. You, you can't grow a good ganache here. It, you're going to end up with a Tempranillo or something that's much more, um, healthy in a, in a higher temperature in order to do those things. And, it, that kind of drives it more than just I prefer this, so I make this because mm-hmm. I miss it. So it's it's a different kind of problem, but it's still a problem nonetheless. Hey, I've yeah, got fun a, stuff. Uh, I've got a problem I want to throw at you and see if you've heard of this before. So I was uh, flipping through a magazine the other day. You remember those? Nope. What nope. are you talking about? Okay. Yeah, just like one of those random ones. Extended magazines in your, uh, in your uh, <laughs> extended magazines. Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Um, I have so many things to say on that coming from you. Um, okay. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was, was a member of a gym before COVID and they would send out, uh, a magazine that a monthly magazine. Anyway, I'm not going to name them cause this is not sponsored. Anyway, there's an article in there that uh, got my attention cause I knew this conversation was coming up and it said drunk on yeast overgrowth. And I'm curious if y'all have heard of this. Uh, but the article is about a guy that had auto brewery syndrome. So, I have heard of this. Yeah. So without, I mean, without a drop of alcohol, he would consistently uh, nearly exceed the legal limit for alcohol in the body. Right. I and remember the, the way it's the, probably the same story, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, the, so the, I think his study was published, let's see, in 2019 in BMJ Open Gastroenterology Magazine, which I'm sure you have a subscription to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it can occur when the growth of intestinal yeast outpaces the body's ability to process yeah. it, leaving the excess to ferment in the bowel. The fermentation produces what is, in effect, the body's own beer, which then made my mind think, weird, you've got, you know, John Doe Get beer drunk here. on bread. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that too, right? But this guy has his own uh, his own craft brew he's producing in his in his uh, intestines. Isn't that Ooh, right isn't that very similar? That. Yeah, that, that you were going the right direction, and it kind of went off. <laughs> you, the what did you say? It's like a hard left turn there. Yeah, I, it, it was an interesting concept, but then you referred to what was happening in his intestines as craft brew, and it got uncomfortable. Yeah, that's the joke. I was trying to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> I was trying to have you join me in this experience. So if I remember correctly, isn't that effectively what happens with sloths? Like they have multiple stomachs and one oh. of them is constantly fermenting? That's awesome. There's, there's no I way that know I'm going to be able to confirm what? this for you. Yeah, I can't Google that. I'm, I'm almost positive that's that so cool. the way that a sloth's stomach works because of how rarely they come down and their need to... Uh, maintain nutrients over long amounts of time is they actually have either a separate stomach or a part of their stomach that is responsible for fermenting. And I always joke that that's kind of why they're always chill the way that they are. I would think that, yeah. (laughs) Well, so just to wrap up the end of this article, uh, as you can probably imagine, but it says the treatment for auto brewery syndrome involves an extremely low or no carbohydrate diet to starve the yeast. And then they'll give mm. you, you know, antifungal or probiotics, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. So I, I remember Just reading kind of probably the same article a long time ago, and I thought that was really, really interesting. But it also makes sense, right? Your gut bacteria can get out of balance. Yeast being one of the, I guess, what fauna that fights for, for resources down there, and it, it's basically it's a yeast infection. But if it's brewer's yeast that you're infected with, then anything that is a sugar is fermentable, and it doesn't take many hours for them to really get to work so you've got plenty of time in the intestine intestinal tract to actually get some some good alcohol i can't remember i mentioned earlier that when yeast are converting sugar to alcohol there's two byproducts right there's the the alcohol and then there's co2 that cannot be comfortable like if you're producing enough alcohol from like a loaf of bread to be measuring above the legal limit, which is what 0.08 blood alcohol percentage in most of the US states, <laughs> that's a lot of CO2 you're producing too. I think we all know where that goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I've been trying to do a little bit of reading on this just in the couple of minutes that we've been talking about it. And it's, it's kind of fascinating that it's not something that anybody can be born with, but it develops uh, specifically, looks like if you're born with uh, Crohn's disease, it can actually be more, oh, no. uh, more prevalent. Oh, more likely. Put, put yeah, that wow. on the pile. That's terrible. Crohn's is yeah. not a happy, oh. oh, but, but the interesting thing is, you know, they'd start talking about other reasons why you have it. And none of these things are alcohol related. They're, uh, poor nutrition, antibiotics, inflammatory sure. bowel, d- diabetes, you know, they're, it all like makes sense. It's like, like I said, it's basically a yeast infection. You, you mm-hmm. have gotten so far out of whack that something is winning where it shouldn't be, you know, from a, a per quantities perspective, right? Because we all probably have some of that yeast in our system. I say all, oh, I'm not a gastroenterologist or anybody that would be able to get into the details there. Maybe, maybe it loses out completely in most people's bodies, but it makes sense that if it if it gets a foothold and really takes over and edges out other bacteria and yeast, that you could have a problem. But it is fascinating. Yeah, the article does say that uh, it can spur a range of other health effects. And one of the ones it calls out is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm. And then it also said that this guy specifically suffered from severe bloating. Shocker. 
So how's y'all's Wednesday? Um, <laughs> hey, do y'all, wanna, do, you, do y'all wanna stay on this topic or do you want to hit? No, we probably could, news? but let's let's do some other stuff. Andy, I'm sure has some opinions. Um, I know we were, we're digging into it. I saw a bunch of stuff in the show notes, but uh, I feel like there were a couple of things that came up that are totally worth talking about. And we can we can totally go do brew automation or home automation another day. So I say we, we pivot. Yeah. Okay, which ones, uh, which ones were interesting to you, Tyler, that we saw in there? Ooh. I, I think we got to talk about Tesla's battery day roundup. Um, okay. They, obviously, Tesla had their battery day. It's where they announce a lot of what's going on in the battery space, of course, specific to Tesla. But um, they had a couple of fun announcements in there. Uh, one that actually kind of caught me off guard and which I think is, is bigger than I think a lot of people will give it credit for is that they're uh, – they're they're going towards zero cobalt in their batteries. Uh, in in I guess the bulk of cobalt is in the cathodes uh, in the batteries, and they're already pretty low, relatively speaking. But that has a couple of really big implications. One is cobalt is uh, it's it's a rare earth material, so it's um, it, it's only produced in certain parts of the world, or at least in mass. Um, it's uh, one of the materials that we sort of identify as having sort of peak consumption problems, right? It's like peak oil. There's there's a horizon where it becomes so rare that we're looking at some very interesting harvest methods. If uh, if you want to go look at waste treatment and cobalt removal, um, there's a tipping point <laughs> where where it makes more sense to use um, like municipal waste treatment to collect cobalt. That's, that's how rare it's potentially going to be. The other problem is, uh, hey, more before of, you move uh, off of cobalt, sorry. No, it's still, no, 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 this was cobalt related, but okay. Go ahead. What, what do you uh, think it's melting point is? That, don't Google uh, it. Very hot. Yes. Very hot. Very like, hot. Give me, give me a number. <laughs> I'll take Fahrenheit or Celsius. One billion of either. Half Close. the sun, 2,500. <laughs> 2700 degrees fahrenheit ha i was close 723 <laughs> degrees fahrenheit i guess i guess 25 boom cobalt doesn't melt that is nuts no yeah cobalt well and and so i mean co- cobalt's Sorry, a cool material in general um and, and we use it in other stuff too so it's it, anyways competing resource there's not a lot of it apparently it's very difficult to work with uh that i didn't know off the top of my head but um the other one is that unfortunately the parts of the world where it's prevalent um they tend to use uh there are humanitarian problems with its extraction and so that was one of the things that i guess elon musk or at least tesla brought up which is we're getting away from cobalt and batteries as fast as we can because we don't really approve of how it is extracted um, so that's huge. Like that, that the a that they're already low on the spectrum of using cobalt, I guess, for for batteries, and then b that they're literally targeting zero. I think I think it's great because that will drive the cost down. Um, obviously, it comes with the humanitarian extra stuff too. So that's that's really cool. And then the other really fun one uh, beyond some of the other cool stuff, like they're targeting a twenty five thousand dollar Tesla which mm-hmm. is great, lower cost, uh, longer ranges. I don't think that's surprising to anybody. But the Model S Plaid powertrain was announced as well, and they threw out some details. Apparently, it's going to be faster than ludicrous mode. For those of you familiar, ludicrous <laughs> mode is an upgrade package. Of course, it will cost more. I think it's 140000 is roughly what they're saying they're going to do mm-hmm. for, for a Model S built out this way. 520-mile range, which is pretty badass. Zero to 60 in less than two seconds with a 200-mile-per-hour top speed. Which, so, so I love that that's insane. a thing. It, is <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I, I've I've actually dove into a lot of research on how fast can a car actually accelerate from zero to sixty, 
And there's a lot of arguments around the fact that it 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 can't possibly go faster than about 1.9 seconds. So they're close to the theoretical. But what is what is that limitation? Is it is it a friction problem? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's getting traction. Right. It's the it's the balance of the equation of of power and torque and weight and Mm. uh, traction and all this kind of stuff. Right. It's cool. So. I don't want to be from zero to 60 in two seconds. I do. Um, it's not something <laughs> that I'm interested in. Me up. <laughs> I remember when they released the Model S with ludicrous speed, some of the videos, I think it was the Model S. Anyways, they they had, you know, the people that were sitting in it and they went through this crazy like lit up tunnel that they set up for the expose and yeah. watching people just plaster pancake back into their seats and like the look on their face said, I knew it was going to be fast and I didn't expect that anyways. Like yeah. I want that in my life. Well, I mean, we've now hit the, I mean, this is, this is the theoretical <laughs> limit, right? Unless you it's literally awesome. put a rocket on the back to where you're sending things in the Acceptable. opposite direction. Battery powered rocket? To, to accelerate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, I mean, you can't go faster. So who wants to guess what an F1 car does zero to 60 in? Oh. 1.9 seconds. Are you gonna throw, <laughs> yeah. Are you going to throw the, the calculations I was just telling out the window? Is it faster than 1.9? So... It says that Formula One race cars have been recorded to reach mm-hmm. zero to 16 as fast as 1.6. Oh! The typical range, though, is 2.1 to 2.7. So what? consider that for a moment. That yes. This consumer vehicle get out of here can get faster to 60 than a formula one car yeah, yeah I, that, i'm gonna get insane. that that 1.6 i mean i'd love to see the details on that it maybe it's like wind aided downhill <laughs> i don't know you know what i mean <laughs> but yeah uh, i mean i i don't know i'm just i know that you know the most incredible machines that are probably touching the yeah. ground for the most part are formula one cars for sure and uh that's just uh crazy i mean they do zero to 100 in uh four seconds flat yeah that, so that's where it separates out man to be yeah. able to maintain that level of acceleration out to 100 is, is just absolutely insane. yeah it's it's absolutely nuts so i'm just just the fact that it's similar so let's forget the 1.6 for a moment let's just say they they both land in the middle of this you know 2.7 to 1.6 range and they're both two seconds that's unreal to me that a consumer vehicle would be able to match an F1 car in, in yeah. that manner. And, so and didn't, didn't add, somebody run a simulation of the Model S against a Formula One car? Or am I misremembering that? That's awesome. I actually I see I a Watt Tesla awesome. Roadster Race Ferrari Formula One car yes, simulated. What? I've not yeah, seen there it. is there is definitely link. I'm uh, I'm putting it putting it in the chat. Yeah, you can link it. Uh, link it on the Twitters. That's awesome. I have seen a number of uh, YouTube videos of there. There's this one guy specifically that has a Model X, and he would just go take people's money left, right, and center, racing <clears throat> all these muscle cars, uh, just That's on hilarious. these you know back streets or whatever. Sure. And just, I mean, it, it's it's hilarious. These guys are getting frustrated, and somebody else pulls up, and he's like, "Well, okay, well, I'm going to take my Mustang up against him." And the next guy steps up, and he just continues to crush them and take them. <laughs> It's awesome. And it, 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 it like hurts their brains because it's of an course. SUV, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but then that, they show you the inside of it and everything is ripped out except for the driver's yeah. seat. And then he's got like extra batteries and all this kind of stuff, right? That's it's awesome. Pretty crazy. <laughs> the first yeah, comment on this this article showing the comparison, an F1 
cars, true strength lies in the corners. It's like, yes, we, we understand that the <laughs> Tesla is not going to be a better racing machine than an F1. Uh, that is not the point here, sir. But my suspicion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, we're just talking about straight line speed here. Yeah. Uh, I got a wow. kick out of, so I posted that last night and Nick responded and said, circled all the things that a large majority of buyers will never use. And then circled all the features except for the prime motor all wheel drive. <laughs> it has all wheel drive, but won't be using 1100 horsepower. Will not be accelerating in 1.9 seconds. That's not true. Uh, the accelerating in 1.9 <laughs> seconds, that I would drive it that way. I try to Overkill drive my car. Is underrated. That yep. That's Yeah, that's true. And, and Buley can attest to this. He's probably said it like eight times. Like if if I can get legally to 60 in two seconds, I'm gonna do it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Note to self, not riding with Tyler. I get stolen. Yeah, Always never, do it with passengers. Do. Oh I have a motorcycle <laughs> story about him I'll share at some point, but not no. right now. All right, what else uh, What else do we want to get into here? I, I saw somebody else put this in. I saw this last night. I didn't think to put it in the show notes, but uh, Xbox uh, released the, what, Xbox Series X um, yeah. announcement, and, and a bunch, like, the, the note that I saw, I think it was on Reddit, the Xbox One X, so the last one, and yes, uh, Microsoft, you are jackasses for, for your naming convention here in its entirety, but the Xbox One X, so the last-gen console, skyrocketed like to the number four selling thing on Amazon yeah. after the Xbox Series X announcement. So a Bad lot look. of people are going to have a sad realization, and and I'm guessing they're going to have a lot of cancellations and returns. Oh, wait, so, yeah. so say that again. What happened? The yeah, numbers so, were so close that it confused so, people. Oh, people the ordered the wrong like thing. Hundreds of the, thousands the pre -orders, of people ordered the wrong box. The pre-orders released for the Xbox Series X, which is their their new console, a new one. And they yeah. were they were you know kind of a mess, much like every other pre-order that's going on right now. Uh, and pre-order. What what happened is is they'd go people would go into Amazon and they would type in Xbox Series X. And uh -huh. the first listing that would come up is an unavailable Xbox Series X link because no mm -hmm. one other than a bot can pre-order these things right now. And then the the direct listing right underneath it is the Xbox One X. One and X. if you don't oh. know the difference, <laughs> yeah, not you'll the see thing. just add to cart. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can tell you a family member <clears throat> called and said, hey, I so I'm trying to, to get this, uh, you know, this Xbox for, for Christmas for for my son and it, it just seems strange to me that it's that i can i can add it to card and i'm seeing there's other people having issues is there something different about this so it was good that they actually questioned it uh because yeah. first off their son wants a playstation and uh second off <laughs> what's the difference yeah you know i you know they, they they sort of caught themselves and i was like yeah this is not um this is not the new one this is the old Wait. one but did they and want a PlayStation because of exclusive titles? Because now that Even Xbox bought Zenith Studio and owns, uh, it was ZeniMax, right? And now owns Bethesda. They're going to have exclusives. So it should, it should be. So let, yeah, there, let's right? let's talk about that a little bit. That, it's, it's not necessarily Microsoft strategy. We're, and if you guys can't. I think we're I was, out of time. Oh, are we? Oh, what time it is. I did. I dropped a smoke bomb. Oh, got to go. Yeah. <laughs> Here, right, right. do that real quick. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to talk about, but this will give us stuff for Friday. There so, you go. Sorry, do it real quick, and then I got to go. Well, what I was going to point out was that their strategy is not necessarily about exclusives to Xbox, no. because Halo isn't even exclusive to Xbox. Right. 
Um, their strategy is very much so about getting games into their Xbox as a service sort of platform or their games as a service platform that runs across Xbox and PC. So they, in fact, they have a couple games they are going to honor um, that are exclusive to PlayStation that ZeniMax owns. And they are going to honor those. So um, oh, really? good, good guy well, Xbox. They probably contractually have to. Probably. In the long um, run, that may not be the case. But, well, but it, is, about, it is curious, too. Think about how hard it would be for them to go back and recode everything to break that. Like it's it's much easier for them just to continue on the release cycle of what they already are. Plus, oh sure, yeah. I mean, you, they could. I can tell you that, that these these um, these architectures are so similar these days. They can yeah. board it pretty easily. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, they they're going to. They really care more. They don't care about you buying an Xbox at all. Microsoft does not care. They want don't you they to buy Xbox money on Game Pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably these these new ones. They're probably making monies on 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 the old Xbox right now, but the new one they're they're definitely breaking even or losing. Uh, so they don't really care about the Xbox. They just That's want more titles in Game Pass, and yep. they want you to consume them wherever you consume your games or your media. And that is their strategy, and that's why they're buying these these people up. I mean, some people have made the argument that one day you could see an Xbox Game Pass um, app on PlayStation. I do not believe that will ever happen. But <laughs> nonetheless, that they would be comfortable with that idea if you didn't buy anything, but you just use Xbox Game Pass app to stream your games on PlayStation over the internet. Yeah. No, and so that's, that's a, it's a different type Netflix of strategy than what sure. Nintendo and PlayStation put, which is all about exclusives on Exclusive the titles. box itself to sell the box. So yeah. there's a guy, Andrew Alerts, uh, if you want to check him out on Twitter, at uh, Andrew Alerts. He's just he's tweeting about this exactly, right? The Xbox One X sales rank is up 747% on Amazon. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Wonder how many people bought an Xbox One X instead of an Xbox Series X. And then he goes on and he says, honestly, they should have named it the Xbox Six. Imagine parents trying to decide which console to buy, the PlayStation 5 or the Xbox Six. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. Strong. Yeah. And then he uh, well, he even like just more on the naming thing. Uh, he goes on to talk about how they got themselves in a weird spot with uh, with Xbox and Xbox 360, then Xbox One, then Xbox One X. He's like, then what do you do? You can't go Xbox Two because Sony has PlayStation Five and Two is less than five. <laughs> <laughs> it's just he, he breaks it all down from like a, a parent non gamer. Uh, purchasing right. perspective the naming uh, conventions are so screwed up series it's X, so important what? What? so important <laughs> it's all in the name Come they should on. just call it xbox panacea hey, hey one it's up just more that. proof that they don't care xbox about xbox unobtainium yeah <laughs> all right we gotta shut it down Andy, thanks for joining <laughs> us man yeah anytime this was a lot of fun yeah we really enjoyed having you on the show thanks for geeking out with me on the brewing side of things and all all things craft that's awesome um i i can't wait to get together and maybe we can do a four-hour episode in a room uh <laughs> in 2025 or something oh sad sad i said that out loud and on that note that brings another tech breakfast podcast to a close thanks everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed it as much as we did if we missed anything in the news which i'm sure we did today because we kind of went off on a tangent let us know if you want to come join us on a show and geek out about literally anything but well maybe not literally Mm. you get the point go ahead hit us up let us know thanks for subscribing tell your friends have a great day we'll talk to you friday later